Hey, I'm Simba Khader, and you're listening to the MLOps Weekly Podcast. This week, I'm chatting with David Stein, the tech lead of the ML Feature Infrastructure team at LinkedIn. Most recently, he's been working on and recently open-sourced Fever, the LinkedIn's feature store. David, so great to have you on the show today. Thank you, Simba. It's good to be here. Maybe we could start by just talking about your journey to MLOps. What got you into MLOps? How did that kind of journey look like? So I've been at LinkedIn for about 10 years. Pretty much the whole time I've been working on problems relating to MLOps. We didn't call it MLOps back at that time. The team I joined when I was new at LinkedIn was focused on the recommendation systems, the recommender systems stack and experimentation stack. Yeah, as you probably know, and probably many of the listeners know, LinkedIn has a lot of use cases of machine learning in production to improve the personalization and the quality of a lot of different aspects of the product. And I was working on this team as a new hire that was building a bunch of the different recommender components. And there was definitely like an awareness, you know, going back 10 years ago that there are a lot of common pieces and a need or definitely utility of having good abstractions. So to kind of minimize the redundant infrastructure kind of work that is needed in order to maintain and support any one of those kinds of vertical areas. Now, that's probably kind of obvious stuff to most people who are thinking about MLOps now, but I've really been just working on these kinds of projects to support multiple different recommender and ML systems over this time at LinkedIn. It's been a cool space to be in, definitely with all of the increasing interest, I guess, in the industry in this space around how do we streamline putting machine learning in production, what kind of tools should be in place. That's kind of how I got here. So you mentioned how, you know, you been doing MLOps since before it was MLOps. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, machine learning has been around a lot longer than the term MLOps has been around. It's been production a lot longer than the term MLOps has been around. What stayed consistent? What has remained kind of the same in how you think about MLOps, how you think about ML infrastructure over your career? Good question. So what has been consistent, I would say, is a lot. Fundamentally, I think that machine learning development, you know, applying machine learning to solve business problems for a company like LinkedIn, it's a very experimentation-driven process. It's like we have teams of researchers and engineers searching for the best algorithm, the best models and feature engineering, feature definitions, searching to be able to find the best algorithm to do the best possible job at helping LinkedIn members find job postings that are a good fit for them or helping people find relevant search results or, you know, these problems. So this search, we need to be able to search this space efficiently. And I think that there has been an awareness for a while about, you know, the sort of obvious importance of making that efficient as possible to be able to productively search the space of solutions, to be able to try new things, to be able to try new things effectively and safely, to be able to get them into production, be able to understand the impact. I would really say that it's about being able to try things easily and also being able to understand the current state so that you know like what next things to be able to try. There's like a lot more I could say. If you have any questions about what I said, you can go in any direction with that. Yeah. One thing you've said actually a few times is you've said I'm a lot of infrastructure and you kind of have a distinction, I think, in how you think about them, which I think I do too. Like, and we made up the term virtual feature store, which I think, or like that whole term exists around the whole MLOps idea as opposed to the ML infrastructure idea and kind of creates that separation. How would you define maybe first MLOps and then ML infrastructure in your own words? Sure. So I see MLOps to be about 
operations, the ability to move models to production. So similar to how I think about things like CICD pipelines for general software engineering and development. I think that we could probably describe like a subdomain of machine learning infrastructure and tools that are specifically focused on being able to try things quickly, safely put models in production, define new features easily, readily, predictably, reliably with transparency into their metrics and things like that. Yeah, I think another way to say it, I think you kind of are getting at is MLOps is the workflow part and ML infrastructure maybe is like the underlying all the tools that kind of come into play, like the serving infrastructure and the training infrastructure. Like, and that's where the CICD analogy maybe comes in. Like CICD doesn't do anything by itself. It kind of coordinates everything. Yeah, I would say that that's right. Practically speaking, we've been able to benefit a lot from tools maturing, like basic ML infrastructure, you know, tools and frameworks and platforms that let you define and author models and uh, machinery for training models. Like over the span of time that I've been talking about you know, over the past 10 years, you know, we've seen things like TensorFlow and PyTorch become prominent. I think the kinds of infrastructure pieces that we invest in now have probably changed a little bit because we're not really trying to reinvent things like that where good standards have really emerged in the industry. Instead, it's like kind of like you were saying, like integration, making it so that people can do their experimentation and then take it and evaluate what it's going to mean to run this in production and then safely try running it in production and have that kind of CICD, but for machine learning development pipeline built around those kind of standard golden set of industry tools. So I think that to some extent, the game has changed in the past few years. It's less about inventing an entire set of tools and more about finding the good ones that are really built a lot of momentum around themselves that are well understood in the industry that are really well built and employed at many of the biggest places are also well plugged into like the education system and that people are using in their graduate programs and things like that. And building the kind of CICD pipeline to make it so that you can put those tools to use efficiently, effectively, you know, for that kind of ML prospecting. It's so interesting how like the DevOps versus MLOps analogies they come up a lot. Like CICD obviously is a great example of this. It's something that I talk about a lot. I think that there's a lot of, even beyond just the problem to be solved, it's kind of a similar problem applied to different people. There's also even the markets, which I won't quite get into in, in this conversation yet, but like even just the market looks the same. Like in the early days of DevOps, it was kind of just everyone built their own things in-house. Like Borg existed at Google, like all these people just built everything from scratch because that's what you did. And then there were some standards that got built in the early days of this wild west. Like there was a billion tools that people use. And now it's like, yeah, you use Kubernetes and you use Terraform, you use whatever CICD tool. Like it's kind of finally become a little more standardized. And one big difference, though, between DevOps and MLOps is experimentation, like you said. And DevOps, it feels like you kind of know where you're going. Like it's rare that you're just like, I'm going to try this and see if that works. And if that doesn't work, I'll try this other thing. Like, it doesn't happen as often. It definitely doesn't happen. Like, it's not a constant part of the process. Is that fair? I guess, how do you think about the difference? Maybe what is your view of the difference in like DevOps and MLOps? Why are they different fields? Why don't we just expand our CICD to just have a model train step? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So you mentioned that with DevOps, there's a difference in terms of the focus on experimentation. Yeah, I feel like MLOps is much more experimental. Like it's like a lot of what I'm doing as a data scientist 
is exploring data, trying different models out. There's a lot more, I guess, random walks, <laughs> like a random walk algorithm, and just more research, I guess, in the data science side. Where I feel like DevOps, like as a developer working on software, like I kind of know what the next thing I need to build is. Like it's rare. I'm like, well, I'm going to try to build this feature, and I'll build this feature, and I'll build this feature, and see what happens. That is interesting. I think that that is true to an extent. My understanding of DevOps and at least like the tool, I'm most familiar with like the machinery that's within LinkedIn since I've been at LinkedIn for a long time. I do see it as being to some extent about a kind of experimentation, not exactly in the same ways that you do in order to decide what direction you're going to go in your ML project. But there is a system in place where you make modules prove that they are safe to deploy by validating it with metrics and measuring what happens when you deploy it just on one piece of the cluster. Things like feature flags that exist like in another space where you're able to like, I don't know if this is really considered CICD, but I kind of consider all these things in like a same kind of group of things that lets us manage changes. There might be a risk that a change is not safe, like that it may cause some failure when things are pushed into production. So having automated testing machinery that makes sure we can safely evaluate how all of that works and that we can understand and push a button and revert it to a previous safe state, you know, like those kinds of not fully trusting any change that's about to be made, need to be able to measure some things about it before deciding to put it in there. I think that a lot of those pieces are maybe less kind of experimentation in one sense, but still kind of needing to like measure and validate and you know be able to, before pushing things out in front of everyone are something that's actually, from my point of view, to a large extent common. There are definitely differences. I think a lot about not just like DevOps tools, but other tools that we use to solve various kinds of productivity challenges in software engineering in terms of trying new things or moving them into production. There are, as I think you said, like a lot of analogies that we should, as an industry, be exploiting more. What are the lessons that we can learn from how collaboration problems or rapid artifact deployment or things like that, that, you know, good solutions that have already been built for like software engineering, taking those lessons and applying them in the ML domain is sort of a big part of what MLOps is, in my opinion. I think there's so much here still to like unpack. And I think a lot of it just hasn't really been figured out in the space yet. Like I think there's just a lot of open questions. And I think the reason that's true is I don't know if anyone really has like a perfect MLOps workflow. Even in DevOps, like even in the early days of DevOps, people are like, well, like this is what Google does. So we'll do it like them. Or this is what name any top technical company does that is like the gold standard. And in ML, like I've worked with and talked to a lot of companies and I don't know if I've ever met anyone who's like, yeah, we do it perfectly here. We got it down. This is how it should work. Like everyone should kind of do it like us. Not even from the ego point of view, but don't think anyone's even close to that yet. Like a lot of people are like, yeah, we're still very in the early days. It would be really interesting to understand, like, let's say, you know, a data scientist at LinkedIn working on machine learning. How does their workflow look like? You talk about the average day of them, but also I'd be interested to also understand, like, what are they interacting with? Like, oh, they use like, Data Hub or Fever or something else, to, like, understand, like, features and data that exist. Good question. So things that I can comment publicly about are, there are some blog posts that our machine learning infrastructure team has released over the past few years about our kind of productive machine learning and machine learning infrastructure initiatives. So I encourage listeners to go check that out. Just if you search for LinkedIn Pro ML, like Pro hyphen ML, 
It's sort of like a project that we've publicly described before and blog posts that talk about some of the aspects of these things. Uh, definitely like the pillars of this are around giving users who are, you know, LinkedIn engineers working in the ML, applied ML space, giving them tools for exploring data sets and trying model authoring or trying different kind of modeling ideas and feature definition ideas and being able to do that with open standard tools like TensorFlow is one example that LinkedIn is definitely using heavily. I'm pretty sure that's publicly been described. Moving along in the workflow, going step by step, it depends on, I guess, what you're doing. Like if you're developing a new model pipeline for a new problem versus iterating on an existing one, the workflow could look a little bit different. But I guess the notional thing is that you are able to explore data sets. LinkedIn does have tools like DataHub, for example. DataHub, of course, is an open source solution, which originally came from LinkedIn. We have solutions like this. We have heavy use of Spark. We have model training workflow definition systems that are in-house solutions that I think are described in some of these public engineering blog posts that our engineers are able to use in order to find a training pipeline, identify which features from the feature store to pull in. Feature store is obviously a whole other piece here, able to define what the features are in terms of the raw data sets that the company has. Anyways, and then be able to run the model, run the training, see the metrics, see the impact, find an idea that you want to deploy because it looks like it is having a positive benefit, and then use the other parts of the workflow and the other parts of the platform, which are LinkedIn's model deployment and registration systems that push the model into LinkedIn's production environment for running an inference. And there are more details I could give on some of those areas. I obviously have the most focus on the feature definition and productionalization feature exploration kind of side of this. Yeah, that is kind of the high-level workflow kind of vaguely described. And folks can look at those blog posts to see a few more details. Is there any design decision that you all made on the ML platform? If you can't share necessarily on the whole platform, it could just be about Fever. But maybe just a design decision that was made that you think is unique, like it's just something that's maybe uncommon, that really worked out for you? Thinking about whether to try to answer this for the whole machine learning platform or to focus more on my sort of subdomain around the feature infrastructure and the feature store. I'll talk probably first about Feather, and we could talk more about other aspects of the ML platform, maybe if I come up with top ideas I'd like to share more generally. Something with Feather that we prioritized in the early days, kind of a design principle, was focused on collaborative machine learning feature definition, the ability to like share work. So we didn't just want to have a system that lets you define some features and ship those to production and use them. We wanted to be able to define features based on raw data sets in a way that the definitions one engineer writes can be used right alongside definitions that other engineers write. And that may sound like a simple or obvious thing, but there's a set of like low-level important details at the core of how Feather works that required us to like lean hard on that assumption in order to be able to efficiently, for example, only load certain source data sets once, even if many different engineers decided to base feature definitions on those common sources. It required us to make design decisions and the details of how Feather works to kind of allow it to be this collaborative system. And it would have been hard to try to add that on as a feature down the road. So we leaned in pretty hard on that. And I think that that 
paid off because it is one of the cool things that we provide, like that you can use feature definitions that go against common sources. The definitions don't need to know anything about each other. They can be written in different places. They can be consumed and used in a commonplace, computed efficiently together in a way that kind of facilitates this collaborative setup. And that also enables simple feature definitions. It's not as though like every feature that's defined on certain data sources needs to be jammed into one place. So there's other details like that that I think have led to a better ecosystem than we would have had if we didn't focus on that as a principle. I want to dig into it. We both know feature storage very well, so I can kind of assume like what you're getting at. But just for people who maybe don't, in our case, like one thing that we're really leaning into is immutability. That's one way we're able to do feature sharing and other things. You mentioned like one thing you decided in the design of the API is that, hey, feature sharing, that's like a first class thing that always needs to be possible to do. And it's not something that can be added, like you said. You have to have this as a priority from the beginning for an implementation to be possible. Otherwise, there's no way to like kind of do it without a full rewrite, more or less. What are some of the things you actually did to actually allow you to be able to implement feature sharing? Maybe what did you have to limit could be one way to think of it. Sure. So, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is that Feather actually controls the loading of the underlying data. It doesn't put into the hands of the engineer who is writing the feature definition the ability to like use Spark APIs to load the underlying data directly. Users specify the location of the underlying data, but then they're subject to some API constraints that Feather provides in terms of defining what kinds of transformation aggregation operations can happen on those data. But it's not as though the user is able to provide the loading of the data and the transformation of the data all in one bundle. At least, I say that a little bit simply, like basically saying you load the data in one place, whether you can actually manage that independently and then run all of the related pieces of transformation logic that may have been written by various engineers. So this is like a limitation in the API. This was from the early days. This may give rise to other questions. This is like painting with broad strokes. There's some details there that may kind of be slightly different from like the main rule that I've described, but hopefully like as like a general rule for, you know, like designing a platform, there are certain things that you need to be careful about, about if you want to be able to apply just API design, right? Abstractions design, forcing the specification for transformation to be defined separately, or at least in a separate UDF or in a separate definition module compared to where the data gets loaded is just like one example of something that enables that. It's like one small thing. There are other things in terms of we built machinery early on in order to allow teams to import feature definition modules that were written by other teams. We basically built that capability like early on in the lifespan of the project. And I'm trying to think of like what other lower level details here or even higher level insights to comment on on the question. But hopefully that's making some sense. Or I don't know if you have any specific angles of it you want to go further into. I actually would love to like zoom back out now. I think one thing everyone can take from this, whether you're building a feature store or you're at the ML platform team, is I feel like APIs, a lot of the hard parts of MLOps nowadays, I think, is API problems. How do you design an API that actually works? Like implementing the API, like it's hard. Obviously, it's not easy, but I feel like that part is just more understood. Like I think you can get a team of smart data engineers or MLOps people and you can kind of build anything, but deciding what the right abstraction is, coming up with the right API, 
And every API comes with costs and benefits. Like there's no perfect API. Like there's always going to be some trade-off. Yeah, what do you think of it? Is that a fair way to think about, I guess, ML ops and building kind of building platform tools? I mean, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Defining the right APIs is huge because it's related to defining like the clean concepts that people are supposed to work with in order to use a system. I personally think that like a lot of the biggest innovations and breakthroughs that have been the most important things for like feel like big data over the past 10 or 20 years have been related to like APIs that really got it right. Things like MapReduce being like a really obvious example. It's like that's basically an API that actually previously existed, right? Obviously, because, you know, functional programming and all this fundamentals. But the application of a good API that lets you cache the problem in a specific way can really be extremely powerful, right? Because it can help people think about how to formulate their problem in a way that a good platform can actually serve them. So finding the right abstractions, the right APIs is the name of the game, right? Like I could go a little bit into one facet of this that was important in Feather's design. And that is the idea that may even seem obvious now, I guess, like now that we have feature stores and we know what they are and we talk about them. But I would say that early on when we proposed and built this out originally, it was not a settled, obvious idea that like a feature should be an abstract kind of like an entity a concept that should also exist outside of a specific model, for example, or a specific feature transformation program. The idea that a feature exists as an entity outside of the big data, data lake environment, or outside of the online system, that, that it exists. We could have a registry for them, that they should have names and they should have types, and we should be able to reason about them separately from the code that produces them. I think that's sort of like an innovation that many of us collectively kind of figured out, you know, while trying to solve the problems that we had at these businesses in terms of being able to organize the work. We had smart engineers designing features before that, but it was like entangled in the model logic or in other parts of like the data pipeline. So the kind of core piece in Feather's conceptual model for features is it's like you define named features and then you get the features by their names in the right contexts. You define the features that are named features, and then you get those features by their names. And like that was like the simple kind of abstraction, like API, basically. It's really sort of like a meta API, actually, because then you have a couple of different APIs that actually like make that happen in different contexts, one for training and one for you know like bulk data generation and one in the online setting for inferencing and stuff like that. But like the heart of the abstraction, like that was sort of like the nut of it, right? Like define features that are named, get those features by their names, and that's a big part of what makes feature stores useful is giving people the platform to cut this down in that way. Yeah, I love that. Another thing I found, when you come up with a good design, MapReduce is a, is a great analogy for this. All these sorts of use cases that you didn't think about start to kind of work naturally. Like, oh, I never thought of that. But yeah, it just works by design. Like the design is clean enough where the way you're logically thinking about, let's say, a feature is so well encapsulated by this API. I'll give you an example. Like one thing that came up quickly for us was access control, governance, all this stuff. Having that be like a first-class part of a feature, you can actually set not just table-wise governance or row-wise or whatever. Like you can actually set feature-wise governance. That's possible now. Now, to be honest, when we built this at our last company, we weren't exactly an enterprise 
that really had the amounts of requirements that like a bank would need. But because the abstraction was so clean, it was very easy to kind of layer on top all these other things. And everyone that's come up recently, I'll share the same thing. We have the separation of the application layer, like the feature store application and then the infrastructure that people bring. One thing that's come up is, hey, you can actually have different clusters. Like we have a Spark cluster in the US and a Spark cluster in Europe. Or, hey, we'll use Cassandra here and Redis here. Not something that when I was designing a lot of the stuff, I was like, huh, this is a use case that's going to come up a ton. We should definitely design for it. It just worked out <laughs> that by design, I think there's a lot to be said. And I think it's a thing a lot of people miss because it's so much easier to every single time a use case comes up, you're like, oh, we can build that. And you build it in, you build it in, you build it in. And you end up with this really opinionated, deeply bolted together platform that works if you use it exactly as designed but it doesn't really have any flexibility. And I think the good thing, like CICD, going back to DevOps, is some of the best tools there, like Terraform is a good example of this, they're pretty generic. Like if you can kind of almost abstract into like this generic, it's a config file that creates metadata and then there's a, a coordinator that makes it so. Like that's actually kind of a description of a feature store in a funny way. But that concept, the traction, the style they took, the architecture, this worked so well that if you're a bank, you can use Terraform. If you're working on a small project with your own AWS cluster, you can use Terraform. So anyway, I think there's just so much to be said there. And I think if people don't start with the API, they think about the functionality. And I think that's a huge mistake. Yeah. Clean concepts and APIs are really essential. And I like your story that totally makes sense about having a registry of named features gives you a foundation on which to add things like you mentioned, like governance support and things like that, that would be very difficult to just sort of implement in an ad hoc way if you didn't have the benefit of this named abstractions. That should be like a tweet or something. Like names are really powerful. (laughs) Having a system of naming things is sort of like the foundation to be able to organize them in a meaningful way and be able to do things with them. Names, symbols, identifiers, they really matter. They're very important things. When I think about like Feature Store (laughs) and like Feather, I tell people sometimes, I, you mentioned Terraform, but I also think there's an analogy to like how package management works for software build, right? Being able to define the dependencies of your module on whatever packages are required and at whatever versions are required. And that is like a foundational piece of being able to do software engineering. And it relies on the idea that we all take for granted, which is that these artifacts actually have names and that they exist on their own as entities. Someone needed to invent that going back, like uh, computer engineering classes, having symbol tables and linkers and loaders and libraries with names. I should learn more about like the history of computer engineering. I'd love to read about the folks actually invented the library abstraction, right? Like for compilers and linkers and stuff like that. Because if you couldn't do that, first of all, it's like, it's not totally obvious, especially if you know, like machine code and things like that work at low levels, like at the level people were dealing with decades ago. The idea that these modules should exist in named entities called libraries that have contracts, I assume, based on what I understand, is revolutionary because it lets you actually manage these relationships and link things together without you need to do it manually. So I try to imagine what it might have been like to work in software engineering 40 years ago. Two laboratories on the same street probably have different architectures, different ways of writing code. It would have been impossible for them to like share a library. And that is how I have seen like a lot of machine learning development over the past several years. It's like if you have totally different systems, you don't have a common set of names things like features or registry for features and models, you cannot collaborate. It's hard to even collaborate with yourself. Like what you did last year may be really opaque now, right? So 
inter-team collaboration, cross-org collaboration relies on named concepts that are like well-organized in a registry. It's like a foundational piece. I love that. I worked on the astrophysics project when I was back in school and I had to learn some Fortran. And I can tell you it was not pretty. <laughs> we take a lot of things for granted nowadays. And it's funny that we're always learning. We always look back and we're always like, man, that was really silly. Like, I can't believe that's how we used to do things. Like, it's so obvious. Like, we should have had Python back then. But, you know, back then, like, Fortran was like a step up from writing assembly directly. So anyway, this is so much here. I want to make sure that we talk about Fever. Obviously, you guys open source Fever. It's a feature store that LinkedIn built and uses, as listeners probably have gathered by now. But tell us about Fever. Yes. So Fever is LinkedIn's feature store solution. We have a blog post about it describing the problems we're solving. I can briefly give the quick explanation. A lot of it probably would have come through in some of the stuff that I've been saying previously. But before Feather, before feature store and feature register abstractions, we saw a pattern on many different teams where feature preparation is like the most complicated part of the workflow for developing a model. You have huge workflows that kind of get more complicated over time. The more researchers and interns or whatever would join a project and add pieces you know people look for where can i insert like a little bit of extra data here how can i add another facet there like the systems are hard to keep organized over time without like common named registry for things and so in order to avoid these different applications from having to have all the management of feature preparation we replace the need to do most of that stuff with having a kind of common abstraction for uh defining features and then getting the features by their names. And we deployed this. There was a talk about it a few years ago. I think it was 2018 or 2019, the ML platforms meet up. I think there's a link to the slides for that talk on our blog post, but the project had a different name, which was Frame at that time. We've built this thing, deployed it for many of the LinkedIn machine learning use cases, and kind of optimized various parts of it over time for various large workflows. And we have seen that, you know, there's been a big interest in feature stores and feature engines in the industry. And we thought this would be a cool thing to put out there in terms of showing the great work that we do at LinkedIn and potentially like collaborating with the community. And we have been able to get some exciting traction there. We have some colleagues at Microsoft and the Azure team who are working with us. They wrote a blog post also about this collaboration where we have made Feather to be like a Azure native support thing with like very nice how-to get started guides on how to get started playing around with Feather on Azure. So if you go to our GitHub page, Feather spelled F-E-A-T-H-R with no second E in the word, you can find our GitHub page and you can get started with that stuff. And we definitely you know welcome any input or anything from the community. It's been exciting to see what folks have said so far. It's an exciting days for this project. Where's Fever headed? What's like your, I guess it could be like the next big thing you're excited about with Fever. It could just be kind of the long-term vision for it. This could be like a huge topic. I think that the things that I most want to see solved well, right? It's sort of like what you mentioned, like going from Fortran to Python, right? Like seeing how far we've come, but yet there's still room to grow in terms of making the tools that we use even better and clearer and solving the next round of issues and finding the next round of opportunities to make these things better. I think that now we have these foundations of 
this named feature registry and the ability to define features based on raw sources and the ability to do it in a collaborative way. There are other pieces that we have some support for, but that is going to, I think, need to enrich the support for these things, especially around making it easy for like any use case that involves a highly dynamic or real-time feature. This is something that I watch and like look at, you know, various solutions that support this to varying degrees. Like filling in the support for real-time signals, I think is like going to be really important, like in the industry, like having some level of support is I think where a lot of tools are at today, but kind of where I see feature stores going. And I think a direction Feather is going to go is solidifying that kind of support so that it becomes very easy experimental workflow that a person can follow to try a real-time feature tracking something and be able to get that ultra fresh, seamlessly easily computed going back and then instantly available with like zero latency. That is supported, but not as well as it will be like in terms of covering a variety of kinds of cases. I'm going to be focusing on that area making sure that we hit that really well, because I think that it is going to be the sort of thing that everybody's going to want to be doing like in a few years, like everyone's going to want to have like real time signals for all their models. Cause like, why would you want stale signals? Every kind of signal that you're producing, you might as well be able to get it in a really real time way. And once the feature abstractions make that easy to do, everyone will do that. I love that. That's awesome. I think there's almost like a hierarchy of needs for MLOps. Like I think it's feature stores in particular. And I think a lot of people learn this too, because different companies, I'm sure LinkedIn was much more focused on the real time component first and then all the naming and versioning and that kind of stuff kind of came with it. It was much more at the same time. For a lot of companies I talk to, it's like step one, can we actually have a feature exist as a abstraction? Step two, it's like, yeah, like that feature could be real time, like especially for any case and it was as easy to do as batch, like that would just be a huge plus. So I love that that's the direction that you guys are going and this space is kind of moving to in general. I think we could keep talking all day. I do want to be um, sensitive to your time Maybe we'll have to bring you back on one of these days. Yeah, thanks a lot, Simba. It's been my pleasure to be here talking to you. This has been a great conversation. I'd be happy to, to talk more. These are exciting times for this work, making it easy for people to use whatever data is available in order to be able to improve the quality of their products using machine learning. It's a really great area to be in. Happy to talk further, and hopefully we'll get some other folks who are interested in what I've been talking about and happy to talk with folks about these things. 